The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, October 17th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So much depends upon a bone saw. Whether in the library, the parlor, or the kitchen, the candlestick, the lead pipe, and the rope, they all have a non-inherently nefarious purpose. Even a revolver can be explained away. Personal protection needed to start a foot race. But the bone saw? There are a few positive images a bone saw conjures. Mostly, it's about sawing bones. Sure, they can be used for decoration or cosplay, but it's usually used for sawing bone, the sawing of human bones. The presence of a bone saw at the scene of the Jamal Khashoggi interrogation, gone wackily awry, makes you question how awry it actually went. Now listen, I can understand bringing chloroform, tranquilizers, or even nipple clamps to an interrogation. Two of those calm a person down, one spices things up a little bit. But a bone saw? Doesn't seem to be a belt and suspenders kind of thing, more of a belt and body bag situation. Now, I'm not much of a bladesman, and I wasn't even sure if a bone saw really is a type of saw or just any saw that's used to saw bone that Turkish authorities can then leak to the press. It was a bone saw. I mean, can any saw be a bone saw? And can a bone saw saw any bone? So I checked in on the authority on such things, Amazon, and found out that while there are certain blades that are advertised as useful on wood and PVC and bone, there is also specifically a thing called a bone saw. 1990 and free shipping, note not eligible for Amazon Prime, bone sawed orthopedic DDP instruments bone saw. And then there was the Satterley 13-inch bone saw. Looks exactly like a prop on the Nick, but it gets both good and bad reviews. Here's a bad one. Last week, I tried to use this saw to cut a one-year-old goat rib bone. It was a complete failure. My kitchen shears cut the bone better. So there really are bone saws. And Turkish officials do say Saudi interrogators indeed brandished a bone saw on the way into the quote-unquote interrogation. The Trump administration is currently hand-waving away such details as a rush to judgment. President Trump telling the AP, quote, here we go again with, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent. I don't like that. We just went through that with Justice Kavanaugh. And he was innocent all the way, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure somewhere Justice Kavanaugh really appreciates the comparison to Saudi hitmen. You know, he's saying maybe we should take up some executive privilege cases. Let me just crack open my law book and my bone saw. As far as a thorough investigation into what really happened, again, the evocation of Kavanaugh as president doesn't give you hope. And here was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on his way out of Saudi Arabia. I stress the importance uh, of them conducting a complete investigation of the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and they made a commitment. They said they would do that. They said it would be a thorough, complete, and transparent investigation. We'll all see the results of that. They made a commitment that they would show the entire world. Transparency, thy name is House of Saud. Any more information than that, Mr. Secretary? I don't want to talk about any of the facts. Uh, they, they didn't want to either. Oh, that old bone saw. 
On the show today, I spiel about a few Senate debates. But first, he didn't invent rock and roll. He never wrote a song that's in the canon or signed an act that's in your record collection. But Jan Wenner was the ringmaster, the Pied Piper, the town crier, and the amanuensis of the genre. Through his magazine, Rolling Stone, he elevated rock to respectability, all the while betraying friends, settling scores, and snorting away heaps of his own reputation. Biographer Joe Hagan is in the house to tell you about Jan Wenner's Sticky Fingers. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. When Jan Wenner, the publisher and founder of Rolling Stone, agreed to work with the writer Joe Hagen on a bio that would become Sticky Fingers, Wenner seemed to have assumed that Hagen would show some sympathy for the devil. On that score, he would get no satisfaction. Wenner asked, give me shelter. He must have been thinking, I'm used to having writers under my thumb, but not Hagen, who just let it bleed. Guess what? You can't always get what you want. Joe Hagen is here, and I'm done. I'm done. I'm ta- I'm tapped out. That was something. How are you? That was something. But the title, like everything in this, there's the book, and then there's the meta narrative about the book, and Wenner's reaction to the book. He hated the title. He hated the title. That was the first sign uh-huh. that uh, things were going south when the title came out a few months before the book. Of course, as a promo thing. Yeah, and uh, we had to have a big uh, powwow about it because yeah. he was so. Uh, put off by it. He, he wanted yet Jan Wenner myth or God. What did he want? You know, he wanted um, you know his life Wenner, his life and times, or he wanted like a Rolling Stone uh-huh. kind of real generic, uh, straight down the middle type uh, titles. But by that time. I knew where I was going and what the book had to be about, and that was it. So and t- I talked him off of it. And your titles are all uh, song titles, like Big Shot for when he moves to New York and, yeah. you know, the Billy Joel lyric with the cocaine spoon up your nose and staying alive and, yeah. you know, take it to the limit one more time or many more times, which was yes. by the Eagles uh, who played uh, Rolling uh, Stones in a – or played Rolling Stone magazine in a softball game, that's apparently. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, peak cocaine times. Yeah, um, yeah. And and it tells you something about Rolling Stone that they kind of they kind of sloughed off the Eagles and yes. and they thought they were bigger than the Eagles and the Eagles were asked to play some like concert for Rolling Stone and yes. but Rolling Stone kept insulting the Eagles. Well, right, and that was the whole subtext of that is that Jan was forming a social relationship with their manager Irving right. Azoff, who was right. this very powerful guy at the time, and of course they're hanging out at the ski chalet in Aspen on the weekends, and that, you know this is a fun thing they're going to do to finally get the Eagles back into Rolling Stone magazine after they offended them multiple times, you know. Uh, so softball naturally 
you know, would be the thing you'd do, right? Yeah, yeah. So in Jan Wenner, we have this egomaniac genius who understood the culture and would stop at nothing to put himself at the center of the culture as he defined the culture. So it's a lot like there are other characters like this, um, you know, Citizen Kane and Steve Jobs and Donald Trump to some extent, take away the genius part. (laughs) But here's what I would say, or here's what I would ask. You know, you could really make the case that if Steve Jobs never walked the earth, we today would have a very different relationship with personal computing. Right. And maybe, you know, someone like Travis Kalanick, it's not, Uber isn't the culture, but we'd probably have a different um, relationship with how we got to work today, you know? Rolling Stone, for all the excesses of Jan, and for all his attempt to define rock, do you think if Rolling Stone never existed, there'd be a bunch of artists who we as a culture would either know or think more highly of or think worse of, but for Jan Wenner and his attempts to make us think in a certain way? Right. I think what he did was frame um, a kind of rock and roll mainstream. Okay. You know, before him and around the time that Rolling Stone was first publishing, it was an underground it was a bunch of not very taken seriously pamphlets, mimeographed things, things that were so psychedelic that nobody could make heads or tails of them. He basically recognized that, you know, the baby boomers or his generation, which they were explicit about this, you know, this is the youth quake, they would say in the 60s. You know, this is, we are, they didn't have the word baby boomers yet, but they recognized themselves as a generation. Right? Mm-hmm. And he was the one who says, you know what? Rock and roll, it's not just about record reviews and, and uh, the fact that we love these rock stars. We're, they are going to be our voice. You know, We're going to make the youth culture a centralized hub with a bunch of voices that we're going to listen to about war, about love, about sex, about how to live, basically. So suddenly, he's doing the Playboy interview with Mick Jagger. You know, Playboy style interview with John Lennon. And then John Lennon and Mick Jagger and these big rock stars are saying, this is our worldview and you share it with us. And he basically, in my contention in this book, is that he took uh, what was already like a popular thing, rock and roll music for kids, but carries it into um, the mainstream and gives them a voice and a seat at the table. Right, right. And he interweaves what Rolling Stone is with what rock is. So when he's advocating for Rolling Stone in the beginning and, say, writing letters to the New York Times, the Salzburger saying, you know, give us some attention because we're not just some fly-by-night rag, he's really advocating for the genre and culture of rock and roll. That's right. And he himself was a, you know, a kind of uh, dyed-in-the-wool social climber. Mm-hmm. And he's social climbing on behalf of his culture that he represents both entrepreneurially and culturally because he came out of San Francisco in the late 60s. So he's like, you know what? I've got Hunter Thompson, this kind of crazy genius. We're going to Washington, you know? And the next step is we're going to Hollywood. We're taking this show on the road and we're going to take over. We're going to annex all these new uh, all these parts of culture that previously were controlled by Frank Sinatra, right? right and right, controlled yeah. by, you know... What what a pop icon once meant. That's meant, right. And right. he's reinventing what it means. And what it means now is you don't have to dress in a suit and tie. It's all the usual things you hear about the 60s. You know, it's like smoking dope, taking your clothes off, have sex, and it's freedom. And in a way, the book kind of follows this sort of mandate to liberate oneself and to confess and be open and truthful and youthful and all the things that we associate with youth. And, you know, I remember talking to people for this book who I remember when I was in Washington, D.C., I was a young cub reporter, and there's Hunter Thompson and Rolling Stone, and they were the coolest possible human 
beings that you could get near. And this imbued Jan Wenner with a lot of power. You know, suddenly, not only does he have ad dollars rolling in, okay, that's one thing, but he's got such gravity with people. And the politics and Hollywood, they're looking to connect with these kids. Like, how can we get them to vote? How can we get them to go to the movies? How can we get them to do that? And Jan's the guy who's going to bring them to you, but you got to meet him halfway. So I want to ask you about your reporting techniques, your interviewing techniques, because I've listened to some interviews with you. We're talking, the paperback is out, so you had around the press, around the publication, the hardcover. And quite often, what you would do, and maybe you would do this with Jan himself, you would do this with uh, Paul McCartney, is introduce some actual texts or documents. Yes. And that would, would it's what purposes would it serve? With It seemed like, and you could tell me, with Paul, it unlocked something. With Jan, it kind of nailed him down. Like he'd be That's slippery. Right. That's you'd right. read Hunter quotes. You'd read more Hunter quotes. That's and right. finally, I don't know, this is my supposition, but these guys are involved in a certain form of myth-making, but when confronted with the nonfiction, they had to yes. get real. Yes, and Jan was very reluctant to to kind of like confront stuff. And he would sort of, I remember speaking of Irving Azoff and the Eagles, there was a huge raft of like correspondence between them and like legal stuff from Irving Azoff's lawyer when they were threatening to sue Jan for things he published. And I would present him and I would say, read this, check this out. And he was like, oh yeah, I guess our relationship wasn't as great as I've been saying it is. And he'd be like, yeah. And then he would admit it was almost like a, okay, I'll confess that we actually do you think he knew it all along? And his do you think in his own mind well, he told back himself to the narcissism? Yeah. I just think that it was like not a reality he was interested in. Right. In recalling. When you're a rich and powerful person, you pronounce things as you'd want them to be, and very few people have the means to you know yeah, rebut yeah. you. But Jan has a soft spot. It came clear because it seems clear to me as a soft spot for what we might call pretentiousness. Also, yes. Well, and I think probably it made you know. The funny thing is, okay, the White Album, right? His mm-hmm. review of the White Album is considered pretty interesting. And it talked about, oh, this is, he was the first person to write and publish, I think, that said, this sounds like four different solo albums crammed into one band mm-hmm. album. But but the truth was that he uh, brought, stole all those ideas from a bunch of other critics. He <laughs> borrowed them, let's put it that way. And then he would credit them, like in a little tiny note at the end, you know. But that came from David Dalton, this other critic he had. Jan himself did not have really deep critical thoughts about music. He just knew what he liked. And in some ways that was his power. Yeah. You know, I say in the book, uh, you know, the it's the old saying, you know, the the foxes know many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Right. Jan's a hedgehog, right? Yeah, and he under that's what the audience is also. That's exactly. how the audience reacts exactly. to music. They don't react to it like real Marcus. Right. No, he has this sort of music taste of like a middle management character yeah. person in yeah. a you know in a company somewhere. Here's my question. Yeah. He even though he's a narcissist and might not be introspective and be able to look back, he's got to know that he has some terrible skeletons in the closet yes. that if they were to be reported fairly, could not possibly look well for him. Right. So either he thinks he can somehow manipulate you, chooses you because you're well, and he able said to steamrolled. He said, he said, you know, he would say sort of offhand, you live around here, so I feel like I can keep you close in my orbit. 
and that I'll, you know, he thought he could control me. Yeah. That's just all there is to it. But if you're that much, I guess that's part of the narcissism. It seems that if you're that much of a monster, you just simply cannot say yes to a biography that you know is truly going to be warts and all. So in the 10 months since it's published, I'm sure he publicly says I haven't read it. Is yeah. that right? But, I'm, but I bet he has. Nar- narcissists I, I, have to. I'm, I'm genuine. I know he's read it. Yeah. Has it gotten back to you that he had a fact check that you thought was legit or a complaint that you no. made you think about anything? He never came to me specifically with anything. Mm-hmm. He had a bunch of his allies write me these scurrilous, or not scurrilous, were just angry mm-hmm. uh, screeds, I mm-hmm. will say. Uh, oh, you mistreated him. You weren't sympathetic. But on the specifics, him. anything Never legit? on the specifics. Nobody's no, ever, no. well, and it would be hard for them because I was very open about what was going to be in this book. I yeah. fact-checked the hell out of it. You know, I had, right. uh, and I came there's to There's a Jan. lot of sources. Like if he is at a dinner with Jackie Onassis and starts bleeding from the nose yes. and denies it later, which he does. Yes. You talk to two people who are at the dinner. That's right. And in fact, he has this huge cocaine nosebleed, got yes. Jackie all red with blood. Yeah. I got to the point where I, there was a libel lawyer at my publisher and I would just get into, I get him into a conference call yeah. with the sources yeah. so that he could see and hear what I was hearing and say, oh, the person of obviously is credible. They're telling a real story. They have all the details. And, you know, then I'd call this other person and be like, not only was it a restaurant, it was a Greek restaurant and here's the name of it and here's where it's located in Manhattan. So, you know, that's just, it's what happened. But uh, as we've talked about narcissism and denial and all these different things, I mean, I knew before the book came out that it was going to be a moment of the come to Jesus moment, as they say, where he's going to be confronting his own behavior as told by everybody's ever known. Yeah. And that's got to be hard. I mean, how could that not be hard? Do you think him being against it was good for book sales? Sure. <laughs> I, I A lot of people kept coming to me like, you guys are just doing this, right? <laughs> this is just BS, right? He's just opposing it to sell more books, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, no, he seems to genuinely dislike it. And I, I don't know why. It's, there's a funny, there's a scene in the book where he's advising Mick Jagger on Keith Richards' bio, uh, you yeah, know, memoir, yeah. right? He's saying, don't respond, because the more you respond, the more it just sells books. So if you don't like it, don't say anything. Well, he didn't take his own advice, uh, obviously. But listen, I want all of the witches to say, you know, you might find this like ironic or whatever, but I actually like Jan. I devoted four years of my life to writing a 500-page book about him. It's because I thought he was interesting. And it's I thought his life- interesting character, yeah. An interesting Now, Ron character. Chernow says he couldn't write, he couldn't spend that much time living with a person who he didn't like at some point. Right. But maybe it has something to do with the stakes. If there's a historic figure, you know, if Hamilton was truly a monster, it would have bigger implications yeah. than Jan Wenner. Right. But um, I don't know. I could. I, if it were me, I would just be- interested to kind of unpack this and figure out the puzzle that is the guy and to do the research and also to surprise myself and know that I'm giving the world an insight into an important cultural figure that I haven't before. That's exactly what drove me. And I will also say this is that on some level, if I, when I read the, if you read Rolling Stone in the seventies, the the issues, it's a very irreverent magazine. Mm -hmm. And, Serious at times, but irreverent, and has a kind of flip, youthful attitude. And I found Jan as a character to be an irreverent character. You know, I found him funny, and not directly always. Uh, he's not himself funny all the time, but his life had comic foibles to it. You know, there was an irreverent aspect to it. Somebody afterwards told me this, uh, described it as a picaresque. 
And, uh, you know, to my uh, detriment, I didn't know even know what that was. And I looked up the history of the picaresque. And it's actually interesting, back to Don Quixote. But it's a character who is constantly outwitting other characters. And he's a rogue, right? Yes. And Jan was a rogue. And I, I knew that writing it. I was like, he's a rogue. He's like this piratical, roguish character who's always like, aha, look what I did. The, the, the cat who got away with the cream, as somebody describes him in the book. And that's who he was, you know. And the thing about a, a Picaro, who's the character in a picaresque in these sort of old-fashioned stories, their serialized tales, is that they never change. And Jan never changes. That was the thing about Jan. That was complicated for me as a biographer at first. Right. But later I realized, oh, that's this is a he he lived a serial life. He published a magazine, right? Yeah. So you can write it as a serial story of a rogue. Because that's how he keeps acting over and over again, and he doesn't really change. Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Joe Hagen wrote it and has been my guest. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. And now, the spiel. We've three weeks to Election Day and all across America. News Channel 5 and the League of Women Voters, or PBS and the Tempe Tribune, or Action News 7 and the Detroit Economic Club are sponsoring candidate forums, question and answer sessions, or what we like to call good old-fashioned knockdown debates. Not all debates have all the bells and whistles. In fact, few have whistles, but the Michigan debate had three different types of bells. Just a reminder that we have three bells, three... Three chimes. The one minute, the minute 45, and two minutes, correct? You guys, okay, let's make sure. You want to just play that again so you can hear the difference? That's the one. 145. That means you're in trouble. Now, if you go on for a minute longer, you'll hear this. Which means your Stutz Bearcat is double parked. And if you hear this, two minutes after that. hear that sound, it means if you're a Democrat that Trump has been impeached, and if you're a Republican, that tax cuts actually paid for themselves. Okay, first question. John James, Republican candidate for Michigan senator. What's good about Brett Kavanaugh? And uh, two of the three African-American women currently serving in the Supreme Court uh, were clerked under Justice Kavanaugh. Okay, I don't know how many African-American women John James currently thinks there are on the Supreme Court or ever have been on the Supreme Court. But uh, since the answer actually is, of course, zero, I don't think Kavanaugh should get a lot of credit for that. I don't know whether James misspoke or misled, but we can move on from the Michigan race. His opponent, Democrat Debbie Stabenow, is currently leading in the polls by an average of 16.3 points. I think she will hold on. That debate actually was really quite civil, but it was a little short on substance. It seemed like James didn't want to sacrifice his likability for electability, which he judged ain't happening anyway. So on to a Democrat with longish odds, but a lot of money and attention. Sometimes it seems like all the attention. Beto O'Rourke. In Texas, Beto replaced his normally chipper demeanor for some barbed remarks, most pointedly this one. He's dishonest. It's why the president called him (laughs) lying Ted. And it's why the nickname stuck, because it's true. I got to tell you, I hate this line of attack. The truth of Trump's nicknames have nothing to do with why they stuck, because Crooked Hillary, as a nickname, that kind of stuck, and he thinks Pocahontas stuck. People love to hear the Pocahontas thing. Is that because it's true? No. It's because Trump repeated them so often, and a pack of easily led dupes ate it up. Please do not elevate anything Trump says as having the spirit of truthfulness about it, even to score an important point. If... 
for a political line to be effective, it has to rely on Trump's truthfulness. That political line is ipso facto ineffective. Look, I know from one perspective, you could say O'Rourke is doing himself a service by not just criticizing his opponent, Ted Cruz, but by using President Trump's own criticism, a Republican's own criticism against Cruz, because Republicans are the majority in Texas. But wouldn't it be better to say something along the lines of, look, I don't think the president gets much right, but Lion Ted does in fact fit, or just like a broken clock is right twice a day, a broken administration is right once or maybe twice, and one of those times is when Trump called you Lion Ted. Anyway, I would have preferred that O'Rourke not traffic in any Trump tactic or meme or saying, even for minimal political gain. On to Arizona, where the race to replace Flake is tight. And having watched the entire debate between the Republican Martha McSally and the Democrat Kirsten Cinema, I came away with the impression that the idea of Kirsten Cinema is so much better than Kirsten Cinema. Cinema did get McSally to reveal why her personal Yelp functionality is subpar. I'm actually a privacy hound. I mean, my friends and family and staff make fun of me because I won't use location services on my phone. And when someone gave me a Fitbit, I gave it back to them. And McSally also explained away the intricacies of legislation using a word I hadn't heard before. That's what that was all about. It was a processy thing that, as usual, they are taking totally out of context in order to scare people. Now, the actual issue is this. McSally actually did vote, along with every other Republican, voted to allow internet service providers to sell data unless customers opt out. Republicans say, well, all that does is put a company like AT&T on the same footing as a company like Google. And Democrats say, yeah, that's not a great footing. That's too powerful a footing. Framing the issue, though, as Kirsten Cinema did, was, let's call it, maximally alarmist. Martha supported a bill in the United States Congress actually introduced by Senator Flake that would allow internet companies to sell your private data including social security numbers of children. Yeah, I guess you could sell the kids' social security numbers if someone entered their kids' social security numbers in a non-secure website. Of course, using the social security numbers in an illegal way would still be illegal. Anyway, the interesting thing is that this debate point was brought up in the context of the Kavanaugh confirmation. It took three prods from the moderator to get Cinema to plainly state that she'd have voted against Kavanaugh. McSally was just a lot clearer. I support Cinema's position, but she was vague and to me a lot more distant throughout the entire debate. Take this exchange where McSally actually called Cinema treasonous, treasonous for a tossed off comment on a radio show 15 years ago. Um, Cinema said that she had no problem with an American going to Afghanistan to fight with the Taliban. She didn't even say the full sentence. She just agreed with someone. I think she wanted to shut up in a pretty cursory manner. But anyway, here's McSally's criticism of that moment. While we were in harm's way, she was protesting our troops in a pink tutu. And I'll tell you what, if these are not disqualifying enough, Kirsten, what came out last week, CNN reported that in 2003, while she was on the radio, you said it was okay for Americans to join the Taliban to fight All against right, us. We, you said we, you had no problem We're running that. out of time, Here's but we have to let you respond to that. I want to ask right that. now whether Please. you're going to apologize to the veterans and but, me for saying it's okay Please. to commit treason. We are running out of time, so we got to get a response. Well, we need a response because she owes us an apology. Please. So she could have said something like, one, 
Treason is a crime punishable by death. So you may not want to go there, Martha. Two, I was protesting, and who cares what color my dress was? I was protesting a war that had been proved to have gone very, very poorly and killed thousands of my and your fellow citizens. And how dare you call for my execution or imply that I was protesting the troops and not the poor decisions of politicians? Whatever. There are many, many fiery, impassioned human ways to respond. Instead, cinema phrased things this way. Well, Martha has chosen to run a campaign like the one you're seeing right now. It's Where treason. she's engaging in ridiculous attacks and smearing my campaign. And she's just trying to cut, cut, cut and not share the full picture. But the truth is that I've always fought for Arizona. And I have been proud to serve our state in elected office for over 13 years. Arizonans know me, and they know my record, and I've been honored to fight for them. Martha's trying to make this Senate campaign about me, but what we know is that this campaign is about everyday Arizonans, and I'll fight for them. Blah. Look, on the facts and the policies, I support cinema. The stakes are, of course, huge, and I will acknowledge that experts in Arizona say the people that both were trying to convince were GOP women and cinema toning things down and perhaps being so calm is the way to appeal to an Arizonan Republican woman, of which I am not. But in this debate, Martha McSally struck me as a person who I knew and who I understood and who I got, who I might not agree with. And in fact, she may have lied here or there and taken positions that I don't like, but I got her as a person. Whereas Kirsten Cinema seemed flat. She seemed airy, and she seemed to take an unimpassioned tone that, to me, frankly, does not seem right for these desperate times. And that's it for today's show. Just as every cop is a criminal and all the sinners saints, the gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, along with Pierre Bienname. TJ Raphael, TJ, is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. When will those dark clouds all disappear? Steve Lichtai used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out, and he also used to be executive producer of Slate Podcasts. But now he's not. How does it feel? The gist, the number one podcast of gin-soaked barroom queens in Memphis and everyday Arizonans. Umperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>